0: What a day, huh? Wow, what a just already incredible time. Thank you, you guys, really, for leading us. Amen, right? I know everyone's thinking that. It's nice to see the sunshine, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And one of the things that I'm continually blown away by is... um, just meeting people here, and and I keep meeting new people all the time. And if you're new to Crossroads, really, we're just a bunch of ordinary people who believe in a a huge, massive, almighty God who's doing this huge, wonderful thing in our world that we get to be a part. Um, And this week, I was just meeting with you, Casey. Casey, get up here. I gave Casey, he gets less than 60 seconds right now. (laughs) But I love, I absolutely love this.
1: You said two minutes.
0: Yeah, okay, go on,
1: whatever. (laughs) Um, I will keep it short. Uh, My name's Casey O'Neill, and um, so just to give a brief preface to my request, I'm a big political junkie, so I've been watching this entire political debacle unfold in Flint, and it drives me nuts and makes me angry. Um, but the bottom line is, every time I hear about it, I think about Matthew twenty five thirty five when God says, you know when, you, you know, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and what more tangible way to act that out than give people who need water, water. Um, so I, um, I know probably a lot of people in here already have been working to get people in Flint water, um, and I think that's great. And I know a lot of people in Grand Rapids and West Michigan have all been working on it. And so I'm not doing anything that's uncommon. But um, I was just trying to think of how I can be a part of that. And at my company, we have a couple big trucks that can haul tons of weight. Um, And I just personally at my company, we have the ability to bring about uh, a little over 10 tons wherever we want to go. So, um, I've been telling everyone and including Rob, when I talked to him that I'm just collecting water. So some people have been collecting it and have no way to get it there. Other people just want to give a case of water to someone in Flint. And, um, I'm going to sit in the garage, right? That's in the garage after church this morning. Um, so if you want to come talk to me, I can give you the address to my, my shop or I can give you my email address. um, don't underestimate like the simplest act of generosity. It can have a massive impact. So if you already have water that you want to give or you want to just tell me, I'll go get a case and bring it over, I will be in the garage for a little while after church today. I would love to talk to you, and um, you know, hopefully all together we can bring 10 tons or more of water over to Flint. Love it, so, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Is that good? It was awesome, right. dude. And really, you know, these are times where we live where Christians are divided by politics. And I wish we could just try to set our politics aside. And that, as Christians, we know we are for the unborn. We are. We are for the widow. We are for the orphan. We are where our world is in pain and hurting. That's where we're going to be. And uh, I don't know what politic that is, but that that's the Christian politics. So... When I see organic things like this come up, I love it, man. Okay, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and we will be talking politics today. <laughs> it's political. In one sense, I'm saying let's separate ourselves from, polit- from politics, but Jesus didn't come to just give us a spiritual life and a spiritual reality. He came to be Lord over the whole thing. Um... And we're going to see that this week. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and we've made it to Luke 20. I'm going to start at the end of Luke 19, just for a little bit of context. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Verse 45 of chapter 19, found on page 853, if you have a blue Bible like mine. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer. But you, priests, Levites, temple leadership, have made it a den of robbers. Every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. But the chief priest, the teachers of the law, the leader among the people, were trying to kill him. But they could not find any way to do it because all the people Hung on every word, Jesus said. So one day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts, proclaiming the gospel. The chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven... He will ask, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. Jesus says, and neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Then I'm going to skip over the parable of the tenants. Now to verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the government. So the spies questioned him, Rabbi, we know you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. What a setup. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a political question. He saw their duplicity. And he said to them, Give me a coin. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Render, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he said, in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer. He shut them up. Yes, we will talk about the next text, the resurrection, the marriage, but let's go down to whose son is the Messiah, verse 41. Jesus now steps on the offensive. Jesus said to them, what is it that the, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? And then David himself, in Psalm 110, declares, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? It's quite a riddle. You might spend the next half hour just thinking about that. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of these people. They like to walk around in their flowing robes, and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. Yet they devour widows' houses and, for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so just a little bit more context. Um, We've learned that Jesus enters Jerusalem for Passover, and he does this, acting like he is the Messiah. Um, he he comes down the Mount of Olives, which is Messiah Hill, on a baby baby donkey, which is the Messiah Mobile. Um, really, and that's how they saw it. I mean, that's that's what he's doing. If, if 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 you're gonna say you're Batman, you're gonna put your Batman costume on and get the Batmobile, right? Well. That's what Jesus is doing here. I think this is the most explicit statement there is where Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And then he enters the temple and he he, he goes into the temple uh, with purpose. He he needs to do some business here. And the kind of business that he's going to do is similar to, if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, where William Wallace has his uh, motley crew of, of, of soldiers behind him and before them uh, in the battlefield are, is this impressive array of, of, of Brits, of, of the British Army. And Wallace is riding back and forth on his, on his horse and then he, he just looks at, at, at all his guys and he says, I'm going to go pick me a fight. I like that. Because that's what Jesus is doing. You can literally see him saying it to his disciples. I'm going into that temple, and I'm going to go pick me a fight. Because it's game on. And Jesus, up until this point, has had some conflicts, but they're they're really just with the common people. Now he's taking on the big boys. Now he's taking on the establishment. He's taking on the temple and, and its leadership. And if you remember, the temple is the centerpiece of Jewish life and religion. It's the halls of power. Think Vatican. Think D.C. Throw a little Wall Street into that and you have the temple. The people who run the temple are the priests and Levites. As Jesus says at the end of our text, he says they walk around in their flowing robes. They're very much the popes, the cardinals, the senators, the supreme court justices of our day. Not only is this a place of power, it is a place of enormous wealth. First, there's the temple tax, which every Jew, I don't care if you lived in Israel or any place in the world, you had to pay this tax annually. Then there's the temple sacrifice. All those lambs, in fact, Josephus, the historian, says 250,000 lambs are purchased, and sacrificed on Passover alone. Remember, a lamb had to be without blemish. And who determines that? The priests. And so they made it so that the only lamb that would qualify would be a temple marked up lamb. And they had a whole monopoly on the lamb business. The buying and the selling, you had to come, many Jews came from all over the world with, with different currencies, and, 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 and so the temple became a central bank where the, the exchange of, of, of money takes place. The, the priests and Levites own this whole racket. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered their homes in, in Jerusalem, and they live in that part That posh part of of, of, Grand Rapids. (laughs) That's a real Freudian slip, right? (laughs) These homes that they uncovered were mansions. Adorned with everything Roman that you could imagine. Many of them also had winter homes in Jericho. And remember what they're going to say to Pilate at the trial of Jesus. They say, we have no king but who? Caesar. They're in bed with Caesar. And the reason why they're loyal to Caesar is because they don't want anyone or anything to upset their place in the world. Their status, their comfort, their wealth, their prestige. Remember, you're born into this. I mean, you don't go to school to become a priest. Uh, These are the descendants of Zadok. Zadok was the priest when when, when David was king. And and, and that's why our New Testament oftentimes calls them the Zadokies or the the Sadducees. Uh, you, You were born into this privilege. So Jesus walks onto their turf. And because uh, we have so much technology today, I found this wonderful reconstruction of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. And so, I don't know if we have it, okay? Right there is Solomon's Colonnade. That's where the rabbis would gather to teach. Now we're going into the outer courts, or called the Gentile courts, and you're just in the courtyard right now. See how Solomon's colonnade with the portico right there, where the Supreme Court would have met and owned those halls. And there's the temple. Okay, stop if you can. This is where Jesus comes. And he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. Why did he say that? Well, I'll tell you what went on at feast days. This is the Gentile court. This court would have been filled. It would have been a market. Namely, selling the lambs or the, all the things that you would sacrifice when you came to temple once a year. The doves or, or whatever you could afford, what you were going to sacrifice. The buying, the selling, the exchange of money. It was all taking place In what part? The Gentile court. In Isaiah 56, which is building on when Solomon dedicated the temple and said this is not just a house of prayer for Israelite, for Jew, but this is a house of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles. How dare you turn the Gentile court... Where Gentiles can come and meet with God into a marketplace. And he loses it. He goes nuts. I'll tell you what every Jew knew. And you got Jews from all over the world that are watching this. They knew Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is a prophecy about Messiah. Look at, look at Malachi 3. Malachi 3 says, I will send my messenger who will pre- prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will purify the Levites. He will refine them like gold and silver. When Messiah comes, he's going to come to temple. And he's going to clean house. He's acting like Messiah. They also knew Zechariah 6 12 and 13, which says, Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Branch is a term for Messiah. And he will branch out from his place and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two offices. The two offices of king and priest are going to be one in Messiah. And this king, a priest, the priest will build his temple. I want you to feel the threat Jesus is to the temple. In other words, that right there tells me Jesus is going to make the temple obsolete. He's going to make the priesthood obsolete because he will be the priest who will end all priests. And not only that, he's going to build his temple. Think about the fulfillment of that. New Testament says, where's temple? And so there, there is this, this collision, this clash of, of Jesus, this walking temple. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. If you want to know who kills Jesus, of course, God's sovereign in all of this. It's not Romans. It's not Jews or at least the commoner. It's the religious establishment, it's the priests and the Levites, and it's not over a theological dispute. Jesus is a threat to their posh lifestyle, their status, their comfort. And rather than welcoming the Christ, they can't give it Can't give it up. Rather than ridding themselves of the world and Caesar, they rid the world of Christ. Now, before you judge them, what about you? What about us? Are we willing to give it up? Or are we so entrenched? Are we so hanging on to Caesar, to the world, its stuff, our place in it? Jesus is going to always mess with us, always. Now what Luke 20 here shows us too is that the people who most want to kill Jesus are also the most religious. Think about that. And in this chapter they put Jesus on trial. They, they, they come with their delegation to interrogate Jesus hoping that somehow Jesus is going to say something that's going to incriminate himself. I don't have time to really look at all of this in depth. I'm going to barely skim the, uh, the surface of it but your, your first interrogation happens in verse 2. When they come to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, who gives you this authority? By what authority can you just come into our house and act like you own it? I love it. Jesus is rabbinic here. And and what rabbis love to do is they love to answer a question with their own question. And, and, And their question back to them is actually their answer. But what it forces them is for that answer not to be Jesus' answer, but their answer. If they have the guts to answer it. So really, the answer to Jesus' question about what authority to do this, his answer is John. And then when you stop and think about John and who John is, I mean, John's dad is a priest, which means John, too, is, is born as a priestly aristocrat. Um, all of which, John, some, at some point in his life, says to dad and the whole thing, like, nope, not me. I'm forsaking this, and I'm going to go live in the desert. He joined tons of priests, who we call Essenes. He said, this is disgusting. I want nothing to do with it. Where did John's authority come from? He left the the, the title. He left the rank. His authority came from God. And everybody knew it, which is why they even asked him, John, are you the Messiah? John says, No, but there's one coming after me who has his winnowing fork in hand, and he's gonna what? He's gonna clear the threshing floor. What's a threshing floor picture of, symbol of? Temple's built on a, on a, on a threshing floor. <laughs> John's already saying when the Messiah comes, he's gonna clean house. And what I love about this, when I think about Jesus, who he is, and what he left Lord of lords, king of kings, God of very gods, left it all, came to this world, didn't become a pope, didn't become a Caesar. He had no title, he had no earthly rank. John 2, their authority from God be careful how you treat titles and rank because the God I know doesn't do rank he doesn't do titles he's not impressed with it our next question Verse 20. You guys feeling this? It's a heavyweight battle going on, isn't it? Again, keeping close watch on him, they sent spies and pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that he might... So the spies questioned him and said, Teacher... We know that you understand God's word and that you explain it correctly. I love it. They're just setting them up. Okay, now, since you're such a great expositor of God's word, tell us about this tax that we have to pay to Caesar. Is it right for us to pay taxes? See, now we're right into the politics of Jesus' day. There is a massive culture war that's going on. Because Caesar creates all this dissonance for the Jewish people. Because on the one hand, he's promising the gospel of Rome. Pax Romana, Roman peace and prosperity, the nice roads, the -the state-of-the-art highways, running water, the theaters, the arenas, the spas, the shopping malls, Starbucks, Walgreens, McDonald's. He's promising all of it. They also knew that Rome, through Herod, made Jerusalem into a world-class city. And that also Rome, through Herod, provide, made, made the temple itself into the wonder of that world. But they also knew that all of this came with such a high cost. One, the Romans taxed them heavily. But more importantly... Romans would hang up Jews the way we hang up billboards. How many billboards you passed today? Imagine if many of those billboards were people from this town just hanging on a cross. Because that's what Rome did to say, you buck our system and this is what we do to you. And see, you think we have division in our country, but this created such division amongst the Jews. Literally, where Jew would kill Jew. Where Zealot Jew, who hated that, would kill Jews who supported what was behind that. And Rome had uh, had this poll tax that every Jew had to pay once a year. Uh, These coins had to be Roman coins. Coins with Caesar's image on it. And, and depending again on how you felt about Rome, for instance, the Sadducean priests, they supported this tax, because we have no king but Caesar. Zealots not only hated this tax, but refused to pay it, and of course, some of those guys were made into billboards. Now what's interesting is that the coin itself was considered by most Jews of Jesus' day to be unclean and idle. Why? One of the first commandments, you shall have no graven images before me. So conservative Jews wouldn't even touch this coin. Even the Sadducees who paid the coin wouldn't touch it. Notice, does Jesus have a coin? He doesn't. So here's what the coin looks like. This is awesome that we can actually see this. Okay, so there's Caesar's image. That's... Uh, I believe, Tiberius. And what you can't read, which is in Latin, it says, Divi Caesar. Caesar means Lord. Divi, from which we get divine, means God. Lord God. The other side... And by the way, what you need to know, like, are you kidding? He actually called himself that? Yeah. Emperor worship was the fastest-growing religion uh, during this time. In fact, Herod built three temples, temples, not arenas or spas, temples to worship Caesar in Jerusalem, or in in Israel, in the land. Um, The other side of the coin says Pontiff Maxim, in Latin, what we call the Pope today. In English, chief priest. Do you feel the collision going on? Who's the real Lord God? Who's the real Pontiff Maxim, chief priest? Caesar or Jesus? And hopefully by now, in studying Luke's gospel, I especially have Luke six in my mind, where where we look at how Jesus, his his values, the values of his kingdom, are so radically different from the kingdom that he's replacing. Two radically different kings. I'll give you my paraphrase of of Luke 6 because Jesus lays these two kingdom values side by side. Jesus says, my kingdom is not about power. My kingdom is about poverty and weakness. My kingdom isn't characterized by prosperity. It's characterized by need. My kingdom isn't about comfort and seeking comfort. It's marked with sufferers who suffer. And my kingdom isn't about seeking glory and fame. My kingdom is about the little people becoming little people. And then you look at Jesus' life and you see how his life just oozed all of these things from poverty to weakness, suffering to being little, and how these these qualities and characteristics marked the Jesus movement. They marked his disciples. They better mark us. And Jesus' answer here is so less about taxes, it's more about loyalty. It's what kingdom do you belong? He says, Render to Caesar. I love the word render because render means payback, which means even a zealot could love the answer to that question. Yeah, payback to Caesar what Caesar deserves. Brilliant. But his larger point is, and I love what Ravi Zacharias says. He says, I envision Jesus having a mirror in his back pocket and looking at his questioners and says, Whose image do you see? Give to God what's God's. Give to Him all that you are, all that you have your body, your talents. Your very life. And again, we, we, we could sit here and be, wow, wow what, a, what an amazing response. Or we could just be cut to the heart and ask the hard questions. Have we? Is our loyalty to Christ... Have we bowed to this king? Do these characteristics and values mark our life? Do they mark this community? Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Not even seek ye first me, but my kingdom. Because when you're a part of my kingdom, you're a part of me. Final question about the resurrection. I'll try to get really quickly here through this. Um, This is actually something that the Sadducees rejected. Uh, The Sadducees were traditionalists in the sense that they only believed the first five books of the Bible to be part of the canon, to be God's Word. And and if you know anything about the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses or what's called Torah, um, this part of the Bible doesn't teach much about another world or an age to come, but more about our place in this world. So, unlike the Pharisees who believed in a, re- in a resurrection, these guys rejected it. However, they come with a question about it, just because they want to come up with this crazy hypothetical situation that shows the ludicrousy of resurrection. If a woman has seven different husbands, and they ask Jesus, which of the seven will be married to this woman in the age to come? Which one is it, Jesus? And this is where I got to bar- borrow from Mark and in and, and Matthew's gospel, because Jesus more or less just goes, boom! He starts off and says to the most learned, biblical people of his day, you guys neither know Scripture nor the power of God. Ouch. By the way, you will never know the power of God if you don't know Scripture. Then he goes to their Bible, which is the first five books of our Bible. He quotes Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, Moses, I am am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's almost so basic that we miss it. But here's the logic. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long gone and are in in the grave. But God says to Moses... He should say, Moses, you know, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but no, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That can't be past tense. In fact, if you know anything about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the relationship that God had for them, I mean, God set his heart, his affection on them and, and on their family and, and how he bound himself to them uh, through this Covenant that was forged in his unfailing, unconditional, never forsaking love. And just think about when we love someone, we never want it to be past tense. Whether it's a friend, a spouse, a parent, And now, uh, apply this to God. I mean, what, what does it mean that, that God loves us? It means that when God places his love on us, it can never be limited to the past tense. And if you don't know this, then you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I think this is what it is about the Pinocchio story that so moves us. It's, it's this fantasy that this little puppet, Pinocchio, can actually become Real. If someone would just love me, if I could have a mom and dad who would love me, then that love could take what's unreal and make it real. And see, if this is true at the human level, how much more true is it about God's love? It's it's God's love that actually causes us to be. It's, It's God's love that actually makes us real, like really real. And when God just pours and lavishes his love upon us, a heart of stone can come to life. And God says in Jeremiah 31, I think this is one of the greatest clauses in all scripture. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Wow. And because I'm everlasting and my love is everlasting. Hmm that makes you everlasting. Because God's love can never be past tense. And this is why Jesus says, he says, God is God, not the God of the living, he's not God of the dead. You know the love of God today, that love that we sang about this morning. Because that love will raise everything dead in this room right now. All right, we could end right now, but I didn't preach last week, so I get a little longer this week. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to end with Jesus being on the offensive because he now takes it to these guys. Who more or less says, let me question you. Why does it say that the Messiah is David's son? It's pretty basic to those guys. Because everybody knew that Messiah, when he came, would be a descendant of King David. That he would be David's son. And, but Jesus, with that, is just kind of setting the table. Because then he quotes one of the most loved psalms of his day. It's a psalm that's pregnant with the hope of Messiah. In fact, it's quoted. It's the most quoted psalm in the Bible. 31 times it's either quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. It's a psalm of David, where David starts it by saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Even there, we're missing uh, some of it, because in the original language, the two words for Lord are different. In the original, it says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Translated, the Lord God said to my Messiah. So what you have here is you have David writing this, Israel's ultimate king, and he's calling the Messiah, my Lord. He's looking up to this king. He's saying he's my Lord, he's my Messiah, he's my king. So here's Jesus' question. How can David's Lord be David's son? Or how can David's son be David's Lord? And I think what Jesus is doing is he's using this riddle to correct their misconception about Messiah. See, they were so dialed into the fact that Messiah would be a descendant of David, a mere human being, almost forgetting that David's son would also be David's Lord and David's God. And with this riddle, he just said, I am Messiah. David's son, who is David's Lord, who is David's God? Answer to the riddle, who's God's son? Now, I don't know if these guys just gulped because what the psalm says next about Messiah is that God says, the Lord says to my Lord, or God says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it continues and says, And this Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't know much about Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is this mysterious figure that shows up in the Bible. He first shows up when Abraham returns from victory over the four kings of the east. And as Abraham is returning from this, kind of as the world's greatest king because he just defeated the four great kings of the east, he's passing through Jerusalem And out comes this mysterious Melchizedek from Jerusalem. His name literally means, Melchi means uh, king, and Sedeq means righteousness, king of righteousness. And then Abraham, as this king comes out to meet him, does something very strange. Abraham, this great person, bows to him. And not only does he bow, but he tithes. In the Bible, you only tithe to God. So here David is. He's an act of worship. And Hebrews 7 then tells us specifically who this mysterious Melchizedek is. It says, Melchizedek, king, king and priest of God Most High, without father or mother, without beginning of days or end of life, he remains a priest forever. And then it concludes with this and just think how great he was, even the great Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder, worshiped him. Because Melchizedek is what the book is about. This king is all over the Bible. And I love it. Even when Abraham bows in worship, what does Melchizedek feed him? The Eucharist, bread and wine, communion. Communion. And why do we like, need to melt when we hear this about Jesus? Because you and I today need more than just a king. We need a priest. Do you know what you look like? Because we all have an image of ourselves. And not just a, a, a physical image, but we all have this moral and spiritual conception of, uh, of who we are. And then we live in a world where, where, where people make judgments and opinions and critiques as, as, as to who and what we are. But the more important question is, do you know what you look like to God? God. And see, this is the danger of religion because religion can make ourselves believe that we look a lot better to God than we actually look. If you've ever had to stand in a courtroom before a judge, you know what a great thing it is to have someone represent you How great it is to have an advocate, someone who's going to defend you, someone who's going to make you look good. And, And the same is when we stand before God. We need an advocate. We need someone who's going to stand with us, defend us, cover us, make us look good. Because we are only as good as our advocate. This is a priest. And King Jesus is also more than king. He's a priest. He's an eternal priest. And he came to this world to be our advocate, to stand with us. Better yet, to stand in our place. So that when you and I trust him and not ourselves, and we trust his righteousness and not our righteousness, and we trust his performance and not our performance, everything that we deserve will be placed on him, and everything that righteous Jesus deserved is placed on us. Where Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness and Jesus' performance becomes our performance. So that Colossians 3 can make one of the grandest statements in the Bible. It says, when we trust Christ, we've been raised with Christ and our life is now hidden in him. And we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places at God's right hand, the place of honor. Which means that as beautiful as God's Son is to the Father, when we're in Christ, we're that beautiful, we're that stunning, we're that righteous. In fact, there's two stories in the Bible that just move me, that just speak about Jesus as priest. The, the one is that woman caught in adultery. And here you have this human court that brings this woman condemning her to death. And they all have their stones in, in, in their hand. But she doesn't know that milk. Kisadak is standing right next to her. At first he's sitting with her. And then it says he stands. And he says, you have no sin. You can cast the first stone. Jesus stands with her. That's what priests do. And they cover us. And they defend us. The other place is uh, just a few weeks after where we are in Luke 20. After Jesus' death and ascension, the church is launched. And there's this man, Stephen, who is just going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is brought before the Jewish Supreme Court. And there he gives a speech to those 70 uh, chief priests. And with such courage that they, speaking about Jesus, they literally are like, Kill him! Stalled him and at that moment God's the, the text says that he sees Jesus Not sitting as Jesus sits at the right hand but he sees Jesus standing because he's standing as Stephen's advocate. In other words, while this human court is condemning him, the only court that matters. The court in heaven is commending him. Isn't it awesome that Jesus is the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices? And he is the king, I tell you. And when we bow to him as our king, and we make him our priest, and we trust his sacrifice, and we trust his righteousness, We become a temple where God comes in and lives and takes a heart of stone and brings it to life. Let's bow to this king. Let's trust this king. And let's accept this priest and his sacrifice let's pray God, as we've already sung this morning, you are so good. You're so good. And for some reason right now you just put on my heart if there's anyone in this room right now who thinks they have stained their life too much. That they've ruined their life too much. God, let them know that you, Jesus, are more than king but you are a priest. And that you can wash all our stains. All of them. From the inside out. In Jesus' name.